In one of King David's songs to God, uh, we find these words. David writes, let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things that he does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. So as we gather to worship today, I would invite us to be reminded that we too worship that same God that David did, who forgives us and heals us and redeems us, and he is the God who continually fills our life with good things. Let's pray together. God of majesty and mystery, you are beyond our understanding, and today we come to honor you as creator and God. For by your word, all things visible and invisible came to be. We honor you as our Savior and Lord, for by your Son, Jesus, all humanity may receive eternal life. And we honor you as the sustaining Spirit, for by your holy presence we are empowered to live as Christ lived. So hear our prayers today to honor you and to worship you and to receive the joy of your Spirit with which you fill our lives each and every day and give us hope. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our new teaching series called Changed uh, today, and we're going to be hearing about the, how the example that Jesus set for us um, while he lived here on earth included emptying himself so that he might be ready to serve people in need around him. And we're going to hear that concept of self-emptying explained and be reminded that we too are called uh, to be and to do like Jesus. Um, if you were here last week, you heard me say that throughout the summer months this year, we're going to have a number of guests who are going to be sharing, uh, in sharing the Word of God with us. And uh, one of those is here today as guest preacher. It's John Atkinson. And some of you may be saying, John who? Uh, John is a, a, mem a member of our congregation here at Redeemer. Um, and uh, the first time I met John and his family, uh, they started coming to Redeemer a few years ago, and um, he's going to be sharing with you some of his own background story uh, as the first part of the message today, so I won't uh, do that, but I will tell you that the day we first met, I discovered that John had been involved in church ministry in a previous career and that he understands the demands and challenges of the local church uh, like a lot of people might not, and I've been waiting for an opportunity uh, to have him take a weekend and share his heart uh, with all of us. So I've discovered that he's also uh, an accomplished musician, and Ben's been trying to recruit him to be part of the worship team, but I want to thank John for taking the time today to, um, to, to uh, sharing the Word of God uh, with all of us. We're going to be uh, continuing this series, as I said, throughout the summer months, and the series is really about how people have met Jesus and their lives are changed, and that's, it's kind of a very broad um, theme, but yet um, it's interesting how many stories in the Scripture talk to us about people who had an encounter with Jesus Christ and their lives were different afterwards, and that's really the theme that we're building on uh, all summer long. Um, grateful that uh, you're here, and I want to share just a moment of prayer uh, bef before we sing again. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come into this place today with joy to worship you. 
forgive our sins so that that joy may be pure. Receive our praise and our adoration so that you may be blessed by our worship. And then speak to us through your word today so that we might hear your guidance for our lives. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. First, I'll reintroduce myself. My name is John Atkinson. Um, the first thing I want to say is I am a little bit nervous to be here, but maybe three, third time's the charm this morning. <laughs> um, I want to start with talking about how is it that I ended up here this morning. And to do that, I'd actually like to start from the beginning of my life, if I don't mind, or if you don't mind. I grew up on a small farm in southern Ontario, just outside a little town on the north shores of Lake Erie. In the summer months, we grew and harvested tomatoes, and in the winter and spring, we had a greenhouse operation that included everything from cucumbers to bedding plants. And here's that farm. Many of you who grew up on a farm likely have a picture similar to this hanging in your home. I love this picture. This aerial shot of my childhood farm was done long before drone technology. The photographer of this picture would have hired a, a pilot to fly over all the farms in our area. The photographer took pictures of each of the farms and would go to door to door showing all the farmers the photos that he took. For a fee, the photographer would transfer the picture onto canvas and create a painting of the farm. A couple weeks ago, I asked my dad if he remembered how much he paid for the painting, and he did. Um, he said in 1984, he spent $75 for the painting of our farm. And $75 was a lot of money for our family at the time because we were not a cash-rich farming operation, to say the least. But I'm so glad that he spent the money. Each time I visit my parents, I spend time looking at this picture. And when I do, I feel like I'm in a time machine that sends me back to this farm in the 1980s. That big maple tree at the back of our farm was simply known as the tree. In the rare moments where my twin brother and I imagined that we were bored, one of us would ultimately suggest, do you want to go to the tree? I can vividly remember so many adventures we had, and one in particular. Dave and my favorite show at the time was the cartoon G.I. Joe. We regularly played out the adventures we saw, saw in that show. Um, in one of the episodes, the characters were able to go from building to building using a zip line. I don't remember which one of us suggested that we could build our own zip line, but I do remember the confidence that both of us had at the ease of this endeavor. We rummaged through my dad's workshop and found all the necessary supplies, and we took the supplies back to the tree. We tied some blue rubber-coated wire about a third of the way up the trunk of the tree. We attached a couple old um, couch feet to an old pulley and carefully strung it through the wire. So far, the design, remarkable. So far. We had to find a destination for the end of the zip line. We pulled the wire as taut as possible about 40 feet from the tree. In our, in our 10 or 11-year-old minds, we securely fastened that end to the sandy soils of southern Ontario with an 8-inch tent stake. <laughs> we stood and we marveled at our design. My brother and I argued about who would get to go first, and I won the argument, or so I thought. I distinctly remember the excitement and confidence I had when I next found myself holding on to the handles of my invention. We were going to have a whole afternoon of fighting the Cobra Commander. But the other distinct memory I have 
is that of falling straight down onto plywood and two by fours of a failed tree fort. Even though my many memories involved the mischief that my brother and I would get into, most of the memories I have from this place are the lessons that I learned growing up in the farm. I learned early about hard work, patience, and faith. The last year that my father farmed, I was still in college. We had, he had recently acquired about 40 more acres of land. The farming industry had changed, and it was becoming impossible to make ends meet on our smaller six-acre farm. It was probably about this time of year in 1999 when my dad and my sister and I planted his last crop of 40 acres of tomatoes. To accomplish this, my dad drove the tractor while my sister was pulled behind on a planting machine. Karen would carefully place each plant into the arms of the planter, which would then insert the plant into the ground along with a squirt of water. Now, my job was to walk behind this machine, inspecting each plant as it went to the soil to make sure that it was firmly planted. The evening that we finished this task, the three of us stood at the edge of our field. We had worked until sunset that evening just to get it done. We stood in silence, looking at what we had accomplished together in that whole week. In my memory, the sunset was, it was like the sky was on fire, and we sat there in silence, looking at what we had accomplished. And my dad broke the silence with three words. This is hope. Although it was only three words, it was one of the most profound sermons of my life. I learned that day that although we had confidence in what we had accomplished, there was still so much unknown about the circumstances of the harvest. Our hard work is only going to get us so far. The success of the harvest was dependent upon conditions that we had no control of. And that's where hope comes in. So, how does a farm boy from southern Ontario end up in front of you all? I met my wife, Christy, when I was 13 years old. My parents sent me to a summer camp in Michigan. Christy was my date in 1991 to the dance at the end of that camping week. Several years later, when I graduated from college, I volunteered for a week at that camp, and she was there too. And we picked up for where we did it from the middle school dance. And although I lived in Toronto, I drove to Okemos about every weekend for a year. We figured out it was pretty serious, so one of us had to move, so I guess I was the one. I was able to come to this side of the border on a religious worker's visa, and I worked as a church planter in Detroit. Much of my time there was helping youth in the area get back into the schools and off the streets. I quickly learned that the work I felt most called to was that one-on-one -on -one work with young people. So I went back to school and I got my master's degree in clinical and school counseling. In my work with families as a counselor, I learned how crucial it was to work with the children's school to ensure their success. So that drove my career into the schools. And so I'm now going on my 11th year as the assistant principal at the middle school in East Lansing. And I get the amazing opportunity to meet one-on-one -on -one with one of our, some of our most difficult students on a daily basis. So I met with Rod a few years back and when Christy and I moved to DeWitt and we started attending Redeemer. Christy and I usually sit in that back row with our youngest child, but at Christmas Eve this year, Let's just say we weren't having a picture-perfect family moment before the Christmas Eve service, and we were having a lot of trouble getting outside of the house. So we got here late, and I ended up in the front row. So all I can say is be careful if you sit in the front row, because the first thing Rod did after the church was make a beeline to me and ask if I'd be willing to share on, on, a, on a Sunday. And that's where I'm here now, and I'm happy to be here. 
So in my preparation for this morning and thinking about all the things that brought me to this point in my life, I began thinking about other elements that bring us to points in our lives. I began researching about all the factors and variables that make your even existence possible. And what I found out is nothing short of astonishing. There's an ancient um, illustration from the East that tries to calculate the chances of you simply being you. Imagine all of the oceans on the planet. Now imagine that in all the oceans there is one turtle. If you were to throw one life preserver in a random place in all of the oceans, this ancient proverb says that you have the same chances of existing as that one turtle does of sticking its head through the center of that life preserver the moment you throw it into the ocean. Dr. Ali Bazinar took the step uh, uh, further. In his work, he attempts to quantify the actual statistical chances of your individual existence. Get ready to be blown away by this. Step one, the probability of your parents meeting. He looked at the odds of your parents meeting given how many men and women there are on earth and how many people of the opposite sex your mother and father would have met in their first 25 years of life. He calculated that the chance of one particular man meeting one particular woman is 1 in 20,000. Not bad odds so far. Step two, the probability of your parents having children. He then looked at the chances of not only your parents meeting one another, but meeting more than once and forming a long-term relationship that leads to children. The odds jump just a little at this point, where he calculated those odds to be 1 in 40 million. This in and of itself seems like insurmountable odds, but we're just getting started. Step three, the probability of your DNA forming to be genetically you. We're going to spare a lot of the details of how DNA works this morning, but what I will say is there are significant long odds for the creation of your DNA to be exactly you. And when we add all that together, those odds are 1 in 400 quadrillion for you being you. But we're not done. The probability of every one of your ancestors having children in the previous step, we only talked about the moment that you became genetically you. However, every one of your ancestors had those same odds. Every one of your ancestors had the same odds of meeting a partner. Every one of your ancestors must have had children. And this is true from the beginning of time. If just one of those factors was slightly off for one of your ancestors, you would not exist as you. And so the total probability is mind-bending. Your chances of you being you this morning are 1 in 10 to the power of 2,685,000. Let's quantify that number a little bit this morning. To give you an example of how large that number is, scientists calculate that the number of known particles in the whole universe, so neurons and photons or whatever those things are, is 1 to 10 to the 86 power. And the chances of you being you are 1 to 10 to the 2,685,000 power. Let's do it, put it another way to get our minds to wrap around it, to talk about what this probability looks like. If you took all the residents in a city like Chicago, so about 2.5 million people, 
And if you gave each of those two and a half million people a trillion-sided dice, and all those two and a half million people rolled their individual trillion-sided dice at the same moment, and on the first roll, they all rolled seven, those are the same chances of you being you. In other words, you are a miracle. But we know that the scriptures tell us that your creation was very deliberate by the creator. This is illustrated in God's words to the prophet Jeremiah when he says to him, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. To me, the statistical evidence is simply a demonstration of how deliberate and special you are to God. You all were created on purpose. As I was thinking about these chances of us being us, I, my mind started to go towards our place in the physical um, part of creation. I couldn't help but think about our physical part in the universe. Uh, for any scientists or teachers out there, I apologize in advance if I'm about to get something wrong with these numbers. But I'd like to take you on a little um, adventure of the size now of creation. Earth is a place we call home. Some days it can feel big, other days it feels small. I suppose in the scope of the universe, it is pretty small. Our little blue planet is about 8,000 miles in diameter. The distance from our little planet to the moon is 238,900 miles. In other words, about 30 Earths could fit between us and the moon. It took the Apollo astronauts about three days to reach the moon. But the distance between our planet and the sun is much larger. 93 million miles separate the Earth from the Sun. To help us better understand this, let's talk about the speed of light for a moment. Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. So that sun that we feel shining on our face, or that we usually do in June, is actually about eight minutes old. It, took, it left the surface of the Sun eight minutes ago. So picture this distance, 186,000, 186,000 miles, 186,000 miles every second for eight minutes. That's the distance that we're talking about. Um, scientists also refer to this distance between the, the Sun and the Earth as one astronomical unit, or one AU. But we know that we're not the only planet in the solar system. Now, I don't want to debate today whether Pluto is a planet or not. It totally is, by the way. But <laughs> the distance from the Sun to Pluto is 29.7 astronomical units. Pretty big but we're just getting started. Our solar system is one of many. Let's see if we can get, there we go. Our solar system is one of many in the galaxy. Um, in fact, scientists say that the sun is simply one of 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. And all those stars need a lot of space. And from one end to the Milky Way to the other is 105,000 light years. So picture 105,000 light years. What does that look like? 186,000 miles, 186,000 miles, 186,000 miles every second for 105,000 years. That's the size we're talking about. But just like our sun is one of many in our um, galaxy, our galaxy is one of many in the universe. The closest galaxy is Andromeda Galaxy, and this celestial neighbor of ours isn't even close to our zip code, as it is two and a half million light years away. Scientists debate how many galaxies there are in the known universe, but this morning I'll use a number of 100 billion of these galaxies. 
And yes, all those take space. A lot of space. The size of the observable universe is somewhere in the ballpark. 93 billion light years. 186,000. 186,000. 186,000 every second for 93 billion years. My brain can't handle this information. In the 93 billion light years of the scope of our universe, over the course of 15 billion years of creation, you have a 1 in 10 to the 2,685,000 power chance of you being you. So, how do we use the special, impossible, miraculous time we've been given? Well, to illustrate this, we only need to look at the life of Jesus and how he used his time. My favorite scripture is from Philippians um, chapter 2. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born of a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This scripture is sometimes referred to as the kenosis, which is Greek for emptying. This is a very important text in Christian theology. In it, we read that God emptied himself of his divine privileges. It humbled himself by becoming human. Let's think about that for a moment. The same God that created the 93 billion light years of the universe, the same God that created the impossible conditions and chances of yours and everyone else's birth, the same God that created it all, gave this up in his experience of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget about the human nature of Jesus. He was fully human. You see, Christ's sacrifice wasn't just in his death, but also his life. Jesus experienced all the joys and hardships of being human. He emptied himself of his divine role of the creator of the universe to have these experiences. And that means that in your joy, he is fully present. That means that in all your suffering and your pain and your sorrows, he is fully present. And even in your death, he is fully there. He perfectly empathizes with all of our human experiences. So why did he empty himself to us? Because he wanted us to empty ourselves to each other too. Jesus gave us many examples of how he emptied and humbled himself to his followers. Last week, we heard the example of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. But in the verses previous to this, we, the story, we read another example of Jesus' healing in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. This was one of the more astonishing examples of how Jesus emptied and humbled himself. There are many rules and regulations on how an individual with leprosy should be handled and how they should conduct themselves. 
Leviticus chapter 13 commands that a person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean, as long as the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone, he must live outside the camp. Later, Jewish practice says that while people with leprosy could attend worship, they must be kept of a distance of at least six feet from others. At the time, to touch a leper was as unclean as touching a dead person. Other accounts of the story in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark make it even more clear that the individual in the story had a very advanced form of this disease. So picture this scene. A man in tattered and dirty clothing who is determined as unclean as it gets approaches Jesus, begging for mercy if it was Jesus as well. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He touches him. And he heals him. He heals a man that has been determined by society to be separate from everyone else. Jesus tore down the separation, and he healed him. This scripture is an example of how quick we are to find reasons to separate ourselves from each other. Unfortunately, separating ourselves from one another is something that we're very good at. We are quick to embrace the process, and I am no exception. When I was 16 years old, I was on a class trip to Calgary. A group of us were sitting on a bench when we saw a man in dirty clothes walking down the street looking in garbage cans. As he came closer to us, my desire to separate myself from him grew intensely. He looked in the garbage can near me and pulled out a partially full sleeve of saltine crackers. But his next move was to look me in the eye and ask me, are you hungry? It's about lunchtime. You can have these if you want. Although there are some nuances of this experience that perhaps I didn't understand as a young man, I was taught a lifelong lesson that day. It was he that emptied and humbled himself to me, where it should have been the other way around. Our human nature to find reasons to separate us from one another was clearly demonstrated August 14th through 21st, 1971, when Stanford psychology professor Philip Zimbardo conducted the Stanford Prison Experiment. The experiment was attempting to investigate the effects of perceived power and it focused on the struggle between prison inmates and officers. In the study, college students volunteered to be their guards or prisoners in a faux prison setting. And although the experiment was intended to last two weeks, it was abandoned after only six days due to how quickly the participants embraced their perceived adversarial roles. The guards engaged in psychological torture, the prisoners engaged in revolt. Even in this mock setting, the two groups easily and quickly separated each other, and they hated the others in the other role. It doesn't take long to find examples all around us of how good we are at separating ourselves into groups and resenting the other side. How many of you have experienced hostility over sports rivals? Demonizing people who maybe don't vote like us? All too often, we're more interested in the other side losing and being humiliated than we are with our team winning. Jesus' action of emptying and humbling himself as a servant is completely countercultural to our standard operating procedure. In closing, let's consider the following. Who are the lepers in your life? Who are the people that everyone else has cast away? How can you empty yourself to serve others? God emptied himself of his divine role to serve others. Are you willing to give up your role? 
Jesus was countercultural in his humility and willingness to empty himself to others. Are you prepared to be countercultural? Let's pray. Dear Lord, you emptied yourself of your divine privileges and humbled yourself as a servant. You, the creator of the universe, modeled humility to us. Help us empty ourselves of our pride and our nation to find reasons to separate ourselves from another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.